0: I would say to fight addiction long-term, we have to give it the root cause of the problem. Mm. And I think there've been a lot of approaches that haven't actually looked at a lot of research that's out there. The strongest type of learning is how addiction is formed in the first place, the associative learning. We've been talking about this, right? Positive and negative reinforcement. If we're anxious and we uh, snort oxy, we can learn and that's how an addiction forms. Or, or we drink alcohol, or we go on social media, all these different addictions form. If we don't treat that root cause of the problem everything is going to be band-aids so here i would say whatever we'll get at that root cause and there aren't any medications that are specific to that because this process is also critical for learning so we can't just say okay we're going to cut that part in your brain that's critical for learning because then we were not going to learn anything it's going to be antithetical to the survival
1: i'm doug bopes Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobes, and it's no secret that the pandemic and COVID-19 have exacerbated things like our stress levels, anxiety, worry, and uncertainty. And as a result, there has been a rise in suicide, drug overdose, alcohol sales, and prescription medication to treat mental illness. What's the path forward? What do we do? And what is the real reason we experience anxiety and how can we manage it? My hope is that after today's conversation, you'll have a better understanding of anxiety and worry and how to address each effectively. Today's guest is Dr. Judd Brewer. He is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. His TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has over 16 million views on YouTube. Dr. Judd is an associate professor at Brown University and is an internationally renowned expert in mindfulness as correlated to addiction. In his latest book, Unwinding Anxiety, Dr. Judd gives step-by-step instructions on how to understand and manage anxiety in ways that are backed by science, research, and data. There are hundreds of millions of people that struggle with anxiety. My concern is that this number will only continue to rise if we don't learn how to manage it properly and pay attention to its causes. There are numerous myths out there when it comes to what works when it comes to dealing with anxiety. And with that said, today's discussion, I think will provide you with science-based actionable steps that you can immediately take to understand, manage, and mitigate your anxiety. What I like about Dr. Judd's approach is that it's tactical, efficient, and proactive. Dr. Judd also emphasizes why practicing mindfulness, curiosity, and awareness is the secret sauce when it comes to modifying behavior, changing habits, and managing anxiety. This conversation covers what anxiety is, what causes it, what makes it worse, and how it relates to addiction. Dr. Judd also explains the role that your health, fitness, and lifestyle play into all of this. This episode will help you manage anxiety both short and long-term. It will also help you rewire your brain to suppress or end the vicious traps of worry, fear, and anxiety. Dr. Judd is one of the best when it comes to educating, teaching, and sharing on the subjects of habits, anxiety, addiction, and behavior change, and his insights will be a game-changer for you. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Judd Brewer to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Dr. Judd, welcome to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And you are a popular guy now with everything going on with the pandemic and COVID-19 and anxiety rates, depression rates, suicide rates, addiction, everything going through the roof. As a result of what's been going on, and we're definitely going to talk about your newest book, Unwinding Anxiety, which is absolutely incredible. We're going to talk about where anxiety comes from. We're going to talk about kind of how to uh, mitigate it, how to stop it, if you will, and, and recover so that it doesn't cripple you for the rest of your life. But I think a good place for us to start is I know you've had your bouts with panic attacks and anxiety throughout parts of your life. But what I want to know is over this last year or so, has there been anything that's come up for you? where you've been kind of forced to use your own approaches with mindfulness and getting curious and that sort of thing to address some form of anxiety or fear or uncertainty that you've dealt with?
0: Yes. (laughs) The short answer is yes. There's there's been a lot. So with all of this uncertainty, my clinic, for example, my outpatient psychiatric clinic had to go online, I had to figure out what that was going to be like to see patients virtually, we had to stop doing our fMRI or neuroimaging research. And so we had to figure out how are we going to keep our lab research going in a time when we can't actually do some of our hardcore experiments with neuroimaging. So we had to pivot to doing online t- trainings, testing more of our app based mindfulness trainings, things like like, like that. And then just the whole personal thing, you know, my wife and I were working from home. I was teaching virtually. She was teaching virtually. We had to work all of this stuff out very quickly, just like many other people did as well. So I, I could name a gazillion things where it's like, wow, okay, this is different. This is new. This is different. Okay, now what? Where we just have to kind of respond in real time. And I have to say that my mindfulness practice was really critical in just helping me be able to take a beat. And not get caught up in the oh no, and really bow to it as kind of bow to as a teacher and say oh, this is what's happening. I have no control over it. How can I keep my my prefrontal cortex online and thinking as compared to freaking out?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And I think one of the things that I've tried to get across to my audience is that eventually this pandemic and the isolation and the shutdowns are going to go away, but you know, the habits that you create in response might not. I mean, there's a lot of people that have turned to drugs and alcohol and food and excessive worry and and you name it in response to what's going on. And I think one of the things that you love about mindfulness is the sense that you're forced to change your emotion about the situation and not the situation itself. Because from what I understand, not just from your work. I think it's pretty obvious. I would say that the more uncertainty there is, the higher likelihood you're going to get anxious or worry about something because as human beings, we love to control things. (laughs) And the more it's funny, we spend like 95% of the the time, I think I'm just using this as an example, like trying to control the things that we can't control. Yeah. And if we just flip that around and said, okay, there's a lot we can't control. But what can we control? I think we would be much more happier, much more fulfilled, less anxious, less depressed. I mean, I go on and on with these benefits that would come from just looking within, focusing on what we can can control, and then trying to
0: mitigate the anxiety and fear around us. Yes, it's funny. (laughs) This reminds me of a skit from the 1970s. Bob Newhart, comedian, right? and he had this skit called Just Stop It. People can YouTube this. And basically, this woman walks into a therapist's office, and the, you know, basically says, "Oh, I have this problem. I have this fear." And the therapist, he says, "I'm going to charge you five dollars, and for five minutes, you won't need anything else." And then he just leans over at his desk and says, "Just stop it." And then she comes back with something else, and he's like, "Just stop it." And she comes back with something else, and he says, "Just stop it." And she's like, "Well, I washed my hands." Off. And he's like, "Well, that's okay, you know." So, but it, it, the the idea behind that is that. Boy, wouldn't it be great if we could just stop our thoughts, like not have the thoughts that we don't want to have? It'd be great if I could, as a psychiatrist, my patients would come in, they want to quit smoking. I'd say, just stop it. Or I want to quit worrying. I could just, I could say, just stop it. We have this whole idea about how we're just going to do that. If you look at the diet industry, you were mentioning people gaining weight. The diet industries have the same formula forever, which is more calories in, which basically says, just stop overeating. It's a great marketing tool because when people fail, then they have to, you know, they can say, oh, you know, join our program for another year. And maybe you can live up to our standards <laughs> as compared to us admitting that the willpower thing is, is more myth than muscle.
1: Yeah, you're right. I'm learning more just in my own experience as a trainer and just even interviewing people on the podcast that willpower isn't everything. And as a matter of fact, it's not nearly as much as we thought it was. There comes a lot more, there is a lot more that's required to achieve things in life than just willpower alone. And I've heard you say that we have limited resources of willpower and in other contexts that it's it doesn't work in many situations. If it worked, then the whole don't do drugs thing, we, we would have been able to just muscle through that, right? Just say no right. to drugs. I mean, we saw how that's gotten us or just take this pill and you'll never be, feel anxious again or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And the truth is it's much worse. Like there's been more medications are getting prescribed. There's been more solutions thrown out there as far as how to, to deal with mental, your mental health and specifically anxiety. And none of it seems to be sticking. And what I'm really inspired by your work. I mean, a lot of it is, but one of the things that really sticks out to me is how you kind of you just, you went deeper on the subject of, of really trying to heal anxiety from a proactive approach and getting deep into it. Because I've heard you say that there's several hundred million people, I think in the U S or so to speak, that, that will struggle with anxiety or struggle like one in three, I think have some sense of, will have some sort of anxiety disorder when it's all said and done. Yeah. And then I've also heard you say that as a traditional psychiatrist, like the rate of success is like one in five when you're just giving somebody a pill. So talk a bit about like, what was the moment like? Like what, where were you when you decided I'm going to go, I'm going to change gears a little bit. I'm going to shift. I'm going to stop prescribing medicine. I mean, I'm going to stop solely prescribing medication and I'm going to look for other solutions to try to have a better track record with my patients.
0: Yeah, well, this, this came serendipitously out of two things. One is it's like a pain point, right? Anytime somebody is having pain, then they're more likely to buy a pain reliever. Right. So, so my pain point was my own anxiety with being able to help my patients, right? Mm. It was basically playing the medication lottery where one in five of them would benefit from the best medications out there and that came along my lab was studying habit change and how to really affect uh, you know habit change in a major way which started with with actually with alcohol and cocaine use disorders and helping people there and then moved on to smoking and had this clinical study out of, I was working at Yale at the time a clinical study out of my lab where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking and that really was eye popping for me where I was thinking wow This could actually work we were were studying mindfulness. And then we did another study where we delivered mindfulness through an app uh, to help people with overeating. And we got a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. And that was also, I was thinking, wow. But there, this person, one of the people in our program, this is this Eat Right Now app, said, hey, I'm noticing that anxiety is triggering me to eat. Can you create a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, well, I prescribe medication for anxiety. But as a researcher, I said, it was kind of stuck a, you know, put a pee under my mattress and I just couldn't, you know, I kept rolling that over in my mind. And I was thinking, well, let me go look at the literature and see. And this is where this overlooked literature from the 1980s, this is back when, you know, Prozac was first being, you know, rolled out of the markets so of folks were focusing there. It suggested that anxiety be- could be driven in the same way as other habits. And so I started thinking, oh, habits, I know <laughs> how to work with those. Can we actually apply this to anxiety? So we actually created an app called Unwinding Anxiety to test it because I wanted to see if it actually worked. And we got gangbuster results. We've now done three clinical trials. And the first one was with anxious physicians. We got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. We did the next one with people with generalized anxiety disorder. We got a 67% reduction. And here we could calculate that number. So You uh, mentioned this 20% hit rate. So that it's called the number needed to treat how many people you need to treat before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. So for medications, that's 5.15 in this study, it was 1.6, meaning we had to treat many fewer people before one person showed significant reduction.
1: Gosh, that's incredibly fascinating. I think it makes sense. I mean, as I was understanding more what you were talking about when it comes to mindfulness, I think, first of all, I think mindfulness gets a bad rap because Mm -hmm. I think People don't look at it from a science perspective. They look at it from like a woo-woo spiritual thing, which I honestly, I support that. But I think there's a lot of people that might not align with that. So when you throw out a word like that, they're like, that's just some spiritual thing. I'm not into it. Uh, I'm not going to try it. But really, to me, mindfulness comes from to being more mindful, like looking within, mm. just saying, okay, like maybe I'm going to be more mindful about what these feelings are. I'm going to be yeah. more mindful about my habits. I'm going to be more mindful about my life. And when you do those things, like you talked about in your book, you develop more of a growth mindset because now you're using these opportunities to learn and grow and not just using this opportunity as a way to self-sabotage because of your current state. But I do want to kind of back up a little bit, not too much, but I think Just because I think a lot of people, they misunderstand the word anxiety because anxiety gets intertwined a lot with fear, gets intertwined a lot with worry, gets intertwined a lot with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. But I think from what I understand, worry is much different than anxiety and anxiety is much different than fear. So if you could give like your definition of anxiety and how it differentiates from the other words, I think people
0: will get a lot out of that. Yeah, I'd be happy to. If you think of anxiety, I think the standard definition goes something like this feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. So here, I, if we zoom in on the word worry, mm. uh, like you're pointing out, worry can be a feeling where I'm right. feeling nervous, I'm feeling worried. And it can also be a verb. I'm worrying. So I worry about something. And like you're saying, those can be separated because a feeling... is different than an action. And here it's really helpful to see them and both of their manifestations because for any habit, we need three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. And so if you think of the feeling of worry triggering the mental behavior of worrying, that result is, like you'd said earlier, it makes us feel like we're in control Yet when we realize that we aren't, it just feeds back and then makes us more worried, which then makes us worry more, which then makes us more worried. And then, you know, we go over that event horizon into the black hole of anxiety.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting to kind of map. I know you talk a lot about mapping out behavior, mapping out habit loops and stuff like that. But I think it's interesting when you map out like where your initial thought was. And then when you get anxious or worried, like where it goes, it Mm. gets so completely like unrealistic and irrelevant to what you're actually dealing with that I think when you write things down, which I know you talk about in your book, you're able to gain some sense of clarity because you're like, oh, like that's not realistic. Oh, oh, like I don't understand why I should be worrying about this. And you kind of are able to bring yourself back to reality through being mindful. And I remember a psychiatrist back in the day, and this has stuck with me, gave me a definition of having like massive anxiety. Cause I, I was saying before we recorded, I've dealt with it all panic attacks, panic disorder, generalized anxiety, chronic worry or everything. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you're trying to jump out of a burning building. It's not bur- a burning building. That's not burning mm-hmm. is, is anxiety is like you're all, you've almost created this false reality in your mind. You're worrying about something that isn't even real. And you're trying to get rid of a situation. that doesn't even really exist. So I I, I know within the realm of anxiety, there's different forms that I think, people would appreciate knowing i know that there's like just the immediate sense of anxiety that might come if if say you and i were to get into an argument right now i might get anxious i might get tense i might get these mm. feelings these, these sensations then there's the the people that i think just have anxiety on a regular basis that's built up through the years and they've just gotten used to that through their habits and behaviors and through biological sort of thing and then there's also like the intense panic attack that comes where you feel like you're dying you feel like you just need to escape and push away whatever you're doing right now. So what are the different types of anxieties? And then like, which ones do you think are, are more common these days?
0: Well, I would say the most common one, uh, I would just call this everyday anxiety, Yeah, where, where we might get anxious about something, something uncertain. We start thinking about it. Our brain starts to freak out a little bit and we get anxious. I'm guessing we've all experienced that over the last year, probably more than ever, the I think the numbers that I I quoted in my book were something like 250% increase in psychological distress just in the last year, like huge spikes in anxiety. So that's something that we all, you know, we all experience. When this becomes pervasive, for example, generalized anxiety disorder is characterized by this pervasive anxiety. A lot of my patients, they wake up in the morning and the first thing they notice is that they feel anxious. And then they start getting anxious about why they're feeling anxious. And it just drives the thing through the whole day. And they wake up this day. And often I've had people say, I can't remember the last time I wasn't anxious because it's just kind of who they are. Even there, (laughs) there was somebody that wrote me an an email who is an early pilot tester of our Unrunning Anxiety app. And she said, I feel like anxiety is deeply etched in my bones, right? That's how identified she was with her anxiety. So that's, you know, that's kind of the, the anxiety spectrum with panic. I think the definition is something like wildly unthinking behavior that is driven by anxiety. So here we can wake up and have, like, I used to get panic attacks. I wake up in the middle of the night. So I don't know what it was. I mean, I was in residency training, so I'm sure there was plenty of anxiety there, but we can have a panic attack just come out of the blue. And, or we can panic where we're kind of anxiety is building and building and suddenly our brain is so offline that we are panicking. Right. And I
1: think there's a big difference. And I think what I found to be fascinating with your book is these habit, these anxiety habit loops, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't want to say there's not a biological sense to anxiety because I'm sure there is. I don't want to completely discard that. I mean, you would obviously know more than me, but I will say that, a lot of what you said makes sense. If you're in the habit of consistently worrying and self medicating with substances and self medicating with things that are in the long term not healthy for you, it's going to make you more anxious. Mm-hmm. And I, I would also probably argue that lifestyle plays a massive role. And anxiety, we were talking before we recorded. I was like, I guarantee you on people on my most anxious days, I'll just use me as an example. I guarantee you on my most anxious days, I didn't sleep well. I didn't drink enough water, probably didn't exercise hard enough. I didn't meditate. I mean, I go on and on with things I didn't do to kind of set the stage to help navigate life, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then I would also argue that on the days where I did sleep well, I did I was hydrated, I ate great, I, I exercised, I hung around great people. My anxiety was probably a bit less. Have you seen any correlation with lifestyle and people's levels of anxiety? Yeah. Well, and
0: I think it's what you're describing is really important here. For example, our brains are just, they're kind of set up for survival and that survival mechanism basically says, if there's something unpleasant, make it go away as quickly as possible. Mm. Okay. So if we do that, we can set those up pretty quickly as as habits. So for example, I feel bad. So I'm going to eat some ice cream, right? And feel better or some chocolate or whatever, or I feel bad. I'm going to go on social media so I can distract myself, but we do all of these things. So that gets, that totally gets in the way of these lifestyle things that you're talking about, where we eat ice cream and then we're not hungry for a healthy meal, or we are on social media all day. And so we don't have time to exercise at nighttime or something like that. Or we stay up late and we don't actually get to sleep. One thing I've seen a lot of is people checking news late at night. (laughs) Well, (laughs) surprise it's going to be hard to sleep because it's generally not good news. They're pointing out all the things that that we're struggling with as, as a world population. So here I think, there are two, two elements. One is that people get stuck in these habits. What was it called? The quarantine 15 that they had to upgrade to the 20 and then the 30 because people were gaining so much weight. And they're like, oh, I'll lose it after the quarantine and I'll lose it after the pandemic. Now this pandemic has gone on over a year. Well, so they do those things and then they have to try to catch up. But at the same time, they're not setting the stage where these preventive measures, these lifestyle measures could be helping them not get caught in these habits but it's their brain going for a quick fix and not realizing that quick fix is actually not a fix at all.
1: <clears throat> yeah. I think it's this, this cycle where you take it, you do, you use a short-term solution to deal with a long-term problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the big problem today is that there's a lot of rhetoric in society that you deserve it. You've had a bad day. So you can have a bottle of wine. You've had a bad day. So you can eat that tub of ice cream. You've had that bad day. So you can go out and just spend a bunch of money but in reality, that makes things worse because what happens when you drink a bottle of wine? Like, how do you really feel? You get up yeah. the next day and you're like, why did I do that? Now I feel worse. So could you talk about the difference? Cause I know you talk about in your book, you talk about being kind to yourself and loving yourself and treating yourself in a certain way so that you feel more open, you feel more confident in being able to grow and the difference between that and and kind of self-indulgence to the point where some of these choices make you feel even worse.
0: Yes. Well, saying. <laughs> oh, you've had a bad day. Why don't you go get a hammer and then put your hand on the table and slam, beat your hand with a hammer, right? That's yeah. not taking care of ourselves. <laughs> so this isn't to say that chocolate isn't good or having a glass of wine for most people isn't fine, right? right. But this is about when we do anything to excess because uh, our brains are looking for those quick fixes. So the, w- the only way to really... <laughs> Step out of these because we get caught in these habits, right? I write about uh, in the Unwinding Anxiety book, I write about a patient who was referred to me for alcohol use disorder. And he was using alcohol to medicate his anxiety, where he was anxious, he would drink, and he never made that connection that it was his anxiety that was driving him to drink. He was just, he just ended up drinking a whole lot every day. And then he was getting more anxious because he was getting behind in work and all of this stuff. So the the piece here is our brains have to be able to first see how unrewarding the current behavior is. And it's not just, oh, I'm going to magically make ice cream not taste good. No, it doesn't work that way. I'm going to magically not make your mindfulness is going to wave its magic wand and suddenly I won't like chocolate anymore. No, I actually like chocolate more when I pay attention to it than when I don't when I'm eating it mindlessly. But this is about finding these pleasure plateaus where Our brains are going to naturally, if I eat chocolate, I can start to notice when is it enough? And it's surprising how little is enough, right? And so if I want a little pick me up, I can eat one or two squares of of dark chocolate and really, you know, it's good. I'm done. And I can also notice what happens when I just keep eating a bunch of chocolate. If I'm stressed or bored, it doesn't fix the problem. And then I just get a stomach ache or I gain weight or whatever, all those things. So here it's about seeing bringing awareness in and helping us see oh what do i actually need right now am i meeting those needs and if i want something to as you know, a pick me up or just as something to you know, celebrate because it? it's not self care when we're overindulging it's how much how little is enough there and we're always going to find that pleasure plateau so i think of this and i write about this in the book as finding those bigger better offers and the bigger better offer can be being kind to ourselves when we need that kindness as compared to indulging in something. That bigger, better offer could be as simple as not overeating chocolate as compared to just having a few squares of chocolate, for example.
1: Yeah, I definitely want to dive into the, the bigger, better offer. I want to get into the first, second gear, like your approach to really unwinding and solving, helping people solve their struggles with anxiety. But first I want to go back to something you said a moment ago, where you had a guy who was struggling with alcohol, like an alcohol addiction problem. I know you don't like the word disorder. I'm not a fan of it either, but do you think that anxiety and depression is at the root of a lot of addiction issues that we're seeing now. I mean, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of rhetoric around trauma. There's a lot of rhetoric around just the brain in general. Like, do do you think that if people could really learn how to deal with their anxiety and and their depression in a way that's healthy and that's sustainable that the addictions would subside? We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result, fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto gluten-free paleo vegan and vegetarian diets. So go to earth echo forward slash Doug Again, earth echo forward slash Doug Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of cacao bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show.
0: Well, I would say they, they drive addiction a lot. Mm. So I, I'm, I have an addiction clinic and the majority, if not almost all of my patients have comorbid anxiety of some sort and, and or depression. So those tend to hang out together quite a bit. And so I think if people could learn to work with their anxiety, that would certainly help quite a bit with addictions, not every single person, but I would say quite a number of people.
1: Yeah. I mean, cause I know from my own experience is that my habit loop my anxiety habit loop would be get anxious, snort Oxycontin, feel good in the moment, but then feel like crap later. That was like my habit loop. And it just started, that's how I wired my brain was like, in order to feel good when you're anxious, you have to do a drug. And that just became my new normal. And then when Mm -hmm. I went to jail, I realized, well, I I didn't have access to the drugs anymore. So I had to figure out, okay, like the anxiety is still there. Mm -hmm. The fear is still there. The depression is still there. So how do you deal with it? And thankfully, my cellmate encouraged me to start exercising and I started to develop these new habit loops, feel anxious, exercise, feel better about myself long-term. And it just ingrained these new habits in my mind. And then over time I started to say, okay, like when I have the confidence now, when I'm feeling emotional or I'm feeling anxious to choose something that might not initially might not make me feel satisfied right away. But afterwards I'm be like, wow, I'm so thankful that I dealt with it in a, in a healthy way. And I know you talk about this in your book. I think you had a, a patient uh, that was struggling with going into the store and eating unhealthy foods. She opted for the fruit instead and and felt so much better, not just because she didn't have that gut bomb from the unhealthy foods, but because she made a choice that she knew she should have made that was in line with the person that she wanted to become. And I, so I definitely, I think, Now I wanted to go into like, what do you think causes anxiety in itself? Is it genetics? Is it lifestyle choice? I know we talked about that a little bit. Is it just bad behaviors over time? Like in your clinic, what have you seen is the number one cause of people that struggle with chronic
0: anxiety? Yes, it's hard to disentangle all of those elements. I think yeah. all of them are important. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I like to think about is genetics, for example. they can, For some people, they win the genetic lottery, so they're less and they're just chill all the time, no matter what. I'm sure we've all met those people. And then there's the rest of us. But nobody has control over their genes. So Whether it's genetic or not, I actually kind of place that off to the side because that's not something I can help somebody with. Um, Down the road, we might have more genetically-based medications, but that's years and years down the road. Right now, in my clinic, I've got somebody that's anxious. They might be genetically predisposed or whatnot. I have no control over that, nor do they. But what everybody has some say in is how they relate to their own minds. So if I can train my patients to to be able to see how their minds work and all the contributions they're making to feeding that anxiety, that's a place where they can make real progress.
1: Right. And I think that's a really bold approach. And I think it's why it's not only bold, but I think it's necessary because there's a lot we can't control and Mm -hmm. if there is something biologically going on. And we just tend to focus on just that we're going to be feeling even more anxious because we're going to be wondering why it's not getting better because we can't, there's no way for us to fix whatever it is might be going on. And then you couple that with these medications that are being given out that, you know, have a 20% success rate and have side effects of their own. Plus, I think, at least for me personally, there's some sense of shame that comes with taking medication at times because yeah, you're like, be. why do I have to take a pill to deal with my anxiety? Why do I take this to deal with my depression? Why can't it just go away? Or why can't I just do it on my own? So all of that just makes everything much worse. So before we get into like your approach to solving anxiety, I know you also talk about some myths, I guess, in the book. And what people are told that they can do to solve anxiety, which in the long run doesn't, doesn't work. So what do you think are, are, are the few of the things that people are, are, have been told consistently on how to deal with their anxiety
0: that just isn't true? Yes. So one, and I think this is just a Western mindset that it tries to approach everything this way as well. So and not, anxiety also falls into this same, this same uh, category, which is the just do it mindset, right? Just stop it. So, oh, you're worried? Just stop worrying. and Just relax. <laughs> It'd be great if we could just tell ourselves to relax and then we could relax. It's almost like when our when we're, we were, I don't know if you ever had this as a kid, but the, the kid's anxious and then the parent says, hey, will you just relax? And then the kid gets more anxious. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the, and this is not just anxiety. We're seeing this with any habit, just stop It, it doesn't work. So that's one. The other is avoidance. We've mm. seen this with some lifestyle modifications where somebody says, well, I want to avoid eating crappy food. So I'm not going to have it in the house. (laughs) How does that work for anxiety? Are we going to have an anxiety free zone in the house where it's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, can't go in there when I'm anxious. So that doesn't work either as much as it may work for some people for other habits. And I, I use those caveats there because research has shown that basically the people that do that are already good at setting habits so it's easier for them to not buy ice cream at the grocery store whenever, uh, when the rest of us are out there and we're stressed and we make this quick run to the, to the grocery store and there now there's ice cream in the freezer.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I just, in my own, I speak from my own experience when I was, when I'm feeling anxious and someone just says, just breathe or just stop it. It's like, I can't, like, I'm so triggered or in that fight or flight mode that it's incredibly challenging for me to kind of think about anything other than what's in front of me and the anxiety and my anxiety habit loop, if you will, I was thinking about as I was listening to your book. And as I was just kind of researching you, it's like, get anxious, whether it's something at work or something happens to me personally. And then I worry and I Mm hyper-focus on it. And then I think that because I'm worrying about something that I'm actually solving it because I'm like trying to figure out the solution. When in reality, what I'm worrying about is something more than likely I can't control. So I'm never going to solve it. Yes. And, and then it becomes, well, you feel more anxious you're depleted. You're like, why am I in this cycle? There's all this shame. And so I, I want to now get into your approach to getting through these habit loops and rewiring your brain. So it's better suited to manage anxiety. So I want to kind of start from the basics. Cause I like how you, like, I think, first of all, People, we, we especially people who struggle with anxiety, we tend to want stuff right now. We want our anxiety to go away yesterday. Of we course. want things now. We want things we we want to be able to control things now. We want to feel some sense of certainty now. And it's not like that. So I like how you, you have a found like a, an approach that's built off of foundation. It's about becoming aware first, then becoming even more aware, and mm-hmm. then kind of taking action to kind of redefine how you attach a certain behavior to an emotion. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about, say I'm a patient and I'm coming to you and I'm just saying, Hey, Dr. Judd, I'm really struggling with anxiety every day. I can't seem to stop worrying. I don't know what's wrong with me. I feel like
0: crap every day. I'm not sleeping. How are you going to help me unpack what I have going on? The first thing I would do is, and I used to do this, I'd pull out a blank piece of paper in my clinic with my patients and I just write trigger, behavior, result down. We've actually um, made a free PDF. I think it's just uh, mapmyhabit.com. Anybody can download this. So that's what I would do: is I would print out that worksheet and hand it to them, and I would say, "Okay, what are your triggers? If the behavior, what's the behavior? Is it worry? Is it avoidance? What's that behavior? And then what's the result of that? So if we even just walk through that, how would if we were filling out that que- that questionnaire together, how would you fill that out?
1: I guess trigger would be maybe say a client cancels on me for my training business. Yeah. Then the behavior would be like worry about how I'm going to make money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the reward would be I would feel even more anxious because now I've taken more time out of my day where I could have been spent being proactive about solving the problem and worrying yeah. about something I couldn't control. And then and that just becomes this toxic cycle. And then I end up becoming tired because. My brain is just used up a lot of this cognitive and emotional energy, worrying about something I can't control. And it it just goes down this, this crazy rabbit
0: hole. Yeah. So you're pointing out some beautiful mapping and you're also pointing out how it feeds back. That result feeds back and triggers more anxiety and so that it becomes the loop. So that's really the first step. The second step that I would take with you is then I would send you home from my office and I would say, map out these habit loops and focus in on what you're actually getting from the behavior. You already described it. But so you talked about um, wasting energy and time. This isn't actually solving the problem, (laughs) right? Right. Because worrying about getting more clients is different than you being calm, being creative and saying, okay, patient canceled or client canceled. Oh, what can I do to whatever, solve that problem, whatever Mm -hmm. the problem is. So here, this is the second step that I talk about in the book is about helping to tap into this reward-based learning system in our brain. The only way to change a behavior, for example, worrying, is to see how unrewarding it is, right? And so I'd have people really focus in on what are you getting from the worrying and asking that question, what am I getting from this, right? Not just intellectually, but also directly experientially. So they would see, oh, it's not solving the problem and it's making my anxiety worse, just using your hypotheticals. Right, right, right. So from there, the nice thing is you were talking about what's actionable, right? Well, the action comes from our brain getting disenchanted with the old behavior. We can't kind of force something else in, wedge the door open if the closet's full. We have to pull pull out that gunk out and clean out the closet. The nice thing is our brain will naturally clean the closet through us seeing how unhelpful that stuff is that's in the closet already. So if we're like, oh, this is junk, why do I have it in here? will naturally pull it out. That's what our brain does. We did a study with eating, for example, with this eat right now app. And we found that helping people pay attention as they were overeating within 10 times of people doing that, they cleaned out that mental closet. And that reward value dropped so far down that they actually stopped overeating. And we could watch that behavior change from overeating to not overeating simply by having them really pay attention as they were doing that. So that's that cleaning out of the mental closet that comes with step two, which then opens up the door for us to put new stuff in the closet that's actually helpful. It's like oh, new sports equipment. <laughs> you know, when the old realized that the ab machine or whatever we had in there wasn't actually helping us get good abs. Oh, I need to see a trainer instead of buy an ab machine. So that's what I call the bigger, better offer. Yeah, and but do you think though
1: that a lot of pe- your the the success rate is so good with that because. A lot of people have this sense of self awareness that they maybe haven't had before. Cause I think a lot of people are just on autopilot and yeah. something happens, they make a choice based on their, their current level of consciousness and then they go on, they move on. And then something happens and make a choice. And they, three, four, five years go by and you're like, man, like, how did I gain all this weight? Or how did I develop this massive addiction? Or how come I am chronically worrying every day? But I think when you give people the ability to become self aware, they become empowered. because, like, oh, like now I can see what's going on. Let me take some action that's going to move me closer to who I want to become. And so I know that the first gear is mapping out the habit. Second gear is really getting deep and attaching emotion and feeling to the reward and really getting clear on what the reward is actually doing for you in your life. Yeah. And then I believe the third gear is the bigger, better offer, which was where mindfulness comes in. But before we talk about mindfulness, Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that something was really interesting in your book is you talked about the science of mindfulness and -hmm. getting curious and and what that actually does to the brain. I think there's some correlation or it it triggers the same part of the brain, I think is is when you get a craving or an intense craving that you harp on. So if you could talk about that for a second before we get into third gear, I think people would really get a lot out of this, the science of this so that they can then understand why it's so important for them to enact in this behavior.
0: Yeah. So there's a fair amount of research showing that there's a part of the a network of brain regions called the default mode network that gets activated when people are anxious or, and it also gets activated when they're craving everything from gambling to cigarettes, to cocaine, to chocolate. Okay. So that network gets really activated. And what my lab did was we first studied this. We didn't even, we weren't looking for the default mode network, but we were looking across the entire brain at what was different between people who meditate a bunch versus those that don't. And we found that the default mode network was really quiet during meditation. And that it even rewired where it was talking differentially to different brain regions uh, than people who don't. And I think that has a lot to do with what you're talking about being on autopilot versus not. So we'd found this about 10 years ago with experienced meditators and then we started studying this to see if, if we could actually change this default mode brain network activity. So for example, we did a study where we randomized people who were trying to quit smoking. We randomized them to get our Craving to Quit app versus the National Cancer Institute's app. But at baseline, we scanned their brains when we showed them smoking cues to watch their default mode network get really active. Then at the end of the study, we could scan their brains again and see how much the decrease in default mode network activity correlated with decreases in cigarettes. We found a really strong correlation with the mindfulness training, no correlation with the National Cancer Institute's app. So here we could see, oh, this network is important in getting caught up in experience, whether it's anxiety or addiction or whatever. And here we could specifically target it basically with simple awareness practices with, with training,
1: that's awesome. And I think I've heard you talk about how during like fight or flight or when we're incredibly stressed or anxious, like the prefrontal cortex kind of shuts off.
0: Yeah. It goes offline.
1: Right. So we we lose a lot of our ability to think cognitively when we're in those moments. So that's where the importance of kind of practice, you hear a lot, just practice the pause, like but you don't understand the importance of it. Yeah, And what I found, and I'll let you articulate this a bit more is that when I practiced getting curious or this mindfulness approach that you allude to in your book, it reduces the half-life of the anxiety. And then you can kind of just ride the wave and then you can kind of move on. And then I think the other thing that happens, which I think you talk a lot about too, is the importance of the role of of identity when it comes mm-hmm. to anxiety. And it's just, you are able to observe and say, hey, I'm feeling anxious instead of, or I'm experiencing anxious feelings instead of I'm anxious. And I think yeah. there's a massive difference in the two with the mind. So, but I want to kind of, um, pivot it back to you. So if you will, could you articulate in depth, like what the third gear is, why it's so important. And then as you're talking about curiosity, talk about like why it's more, it's it, it, curiosity is not just so general. Like you can be curious and say, oh, I want to go, I want to see if drinking drink a shot of vodka will help me in this moment. It's more about going within and looking internal versus external.
0: Yes. So the one liner on this BBO, this third gear or third step is that If our brains are disenchanted with the old behavior, it opens up that space, right? It opens up the closet space to have put in something that's more helpful. And our brains are going to naturally pick a behavior that's more rewarding. So Mm -hmm. my lab has done research looking to see at all bunch of different mental states, which ones are more rewarding? Well, it might sound like a no-brainer, but (laughs) curiosity is more rewarding than anxiety. Being kind to ourselves is more rewarding than being mean to ourselves, okay? So once we see this hierarchy that is naturally established in our brains, it's not something we have to tell ourselves to do or to learn. It's already set up. What we can then do is help our brain see very clearly that connection. So not only can we help ourselves see that worrying isn't helpful, that's that second step, but we can start to get curious about what worry feels like in the moment. And already we're shifting to the third step because we're shifting more into curiosity rather than being stuck in worry. Worry tends to close us down, make us feel contracted, whereas curiosity opens us up and you can't be closed and open at the same time. They're binary opposites. So if you're bringing in something that is more rewarding, that is opening, we can actually open in that moment rather than being stuck in in that tight little ball of anxiety.
1: Yeah. And I think it allows us to kind of pivot more into the sense of, of a growth mindset, which we hear a lot about these days. It's a buzzword, right? And, yeah. but I think the way you put it in the book, when you actually describe it, and you're saying, okay, how does your body feel when you're looking to grow and evolve and open to making a different choice that we're better, will better yourself. You feel very open. You feel very, I mean, I felt happy. I felt this sense of peace. And then you were like, well, how do you feel when you're closed off and you want to stay in that same rut? Well, you feel like crap. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, when you put it like that, it's obvious, but I think when we're in those moments, it's kind of hard to think about, which I think is why taking this step back and being, getting curious about what you're feeling or the emotions or the situation and then saying, oh, okay, like I can understand why I might be feeling a little bit anxious right now. Like I had someone cancel on me. And so that my habit, or I'm thinking that if someone cancels on me, that every client's going to cancel on me. So therefore I'm going to blah, 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 blah. And then you can understand why you're feeling that way. And then you start to say, well, is that real? And you start to ask yourself more questions. Is that realistic? 9.999 times out of 10, the answer is no. And then you kind of move on and then you start to develop these new habits and patterns. But I think what happens, at least in my own experience, is they get to that moment they're like, oh my gosh, why am I feeling anxious? Why? Like, why? And you talk about that in your book too, you get in this why habit loop. Instead of saying, instead of like really like looking within and, and getting clear on what you're experiencing, it's just, you're focusing on why the feelings and that can get you in a whole other toxic habit loop too, right? Totally.
0: Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and like you're saying, it's toxic because we just get tighter and tighter in it thinking that it's actually going to be helpful.
1: Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. So one of the things I, I wanted to ask too is you've kind of gone into the importance of being mindful, becoming aware and changing our habits as a result of anxiety. Is there anything in your research or even in your own life that you do just on a regular basis that, that helps mitigate your anxiety and kind of puts the shield up to kind of help guard you from the, the stressors and uncertainties of life? like other than mindfulness yourself, like, is it exercise,
0: nutrition? Like, is there any, what else do you do? I would say the, and just to be cl- clear about mindfulness, because like you were saying, it can be, it can seem like this candles and incense and rainbows and unicorn stuff to people. I actually, if we drill down into what it is, it's really about awareness mm-hmm. and curiosity, right? So for anybody that's wondering what, what are they talking about in terms of mindfulness, look, we can throw that word out the window and say, okay, awareness and curiosity. So I think of curiosity as my, as all of our superpowers, right? Curiosity is just so helpful in this way. And what it does getting your question is it can help me see really clearly what does make me feel good. So for example, exercise, if there's a clear correlation in my life and tons of science, we don't even need the science here. If we all look at this ourselves, exercise feels pretty darn good. When I don't exercise, I feel less good. And so here, I can just compare those two and find a bigger, better offer. But I have to be aware to do that, right? I have to be able to make that connection. The same is true for kindness. When I beat myself up or judge myself, oh no, why did I do that? If I can get curious and notice the difference between that and being kind to myself, oh, which one feels better? No brainer, kindness, So what do I do? What correlations have I found through that curiosity? One is as food. I I find that when I eat junk food, and I'm actually mostly vegan now, just noticing that when I cut out dairy, for example, Mm -hmm. I would have this chronic Achilles tendonitis, and it went away, and, and I tried everything. So I'm even noticing the correlation between physical health and my diet. And for everybody, it's individual, but they have to pay attention and see what's helpful for them. So Food intake is important. Exercise is important. These are all the things that everybody (laughs) recommends that we should do. But for me, I don't have to force myself to do it. And I would challenge anybody. I would say, you don't have to force yourself to do anything. As long as you pay attention and you see the clear cause and effect relationship, your brain will naturally do it for you.
1: Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, we don't have a knowledge problem in my understanding. I think it's more of an action problem. Like, I think we all know the benefits of eating right, exercise, staying away, staying off the news, not scrolling on social media. But I think it comes down to confidence and, and self esteem and, and how we yep. feel about ourselves. But I think if the fastest way to feel worse about yourself and assure you that you won't feel better is to eat worse chronically worry, not sleep well, not exercise, and all these things. But I think on the flip side, the bigger, better offer, or the more hopeful news that there is that you can begin to change by swinging the pendulum the other direction. And it just starts with being more self-aware because once you're aware of what's going on, you can say, okay, I accept where I am. And now I can take some action to change my state and change yeah. how I feel moving forward. So well, i wanna i kind of i wanna kind of close our conversation, but I don't wanna do so without talking a little bit more about addiction because addiction is so prevalent right now, and it's before covid all we heard about was fentanyl and the opioid epidemic and and everything like that so do you think that the key to fighting addiction long term is changing our habits and our behaviors over time?
0: Well, I would say and this is based on my research and what I've, what theories fit in the field. I would say to fight addiction long-term, we have to give it the root cause of the problem. Mm. And I think there've been a lot of approaches that haven't actually looked at a lot of research that's out there. The strongest type of learning is how addiction is formed in the first place. The associative learning. We've been talking about this, right? Positive and negative reinforcement. If we're anxious and we uh, snort oxy, We can learn, and that's how an addiction forms, or or we drink alcohol, or we go on social media, right? All these different addictions form. If we don't treat that root cause of the problem, everything is going to be band aids. So, here I would say, really, whatever we'll get at that root cause, and there aren't any medications that are specific to that because this process is also critical for learning. So, we can't just say, okay, we're going to cut that part in your brain that's critical for learning, because then we were not going to learn anything. It's going to be antithetical to the survival. So, here we have to be able to specifically target that piece in there where we've gotten, we've lay, layered on those habits on top of our normal learning processes so that we can unlayer those pieces and keep the normal learning process going. And in the same process, ideally, make us more resilient. So here's where I love the simplicity of awareness of curiosity, because it will help us do all of these things. And I say this because we've done the research to show this, where it can change behavior, it can change the brain, whether it's smoking, eating, or even anxiety. If we get at the root cause of the problem, and I should say, we can get at that root cause by bringing awareness in. If we can help ourselves see that the old behavior is not helping, And that behavior could be layering alcohol on top of anxiety, where we can treat both of those or laying addiction on top of anxiety. We can treat both of those through the same root mechanism. So here I would say my long answer to your question was, yes, I I think awareness is a really good way to tap into this very strong learning mechanism that's already helped us learn these unhelpful habits in the first place so that we can actually unlearn them.
1: Yeah, you're right. And I think the hard part, at least in my experience, when you're in the midst of addiction and you're really in it, it's hard to see like three inches in front of you, let alone like some sense of awareness and think logically to say, okay, where did this start? But you're right. Like I never thought in a million years that when I took that first hit off a marijuana pipe, when I was feeling anxious or distressed, that I would end up incarcerated or heavily addicted to opiates. Nobody does. Like If you were to say, I guarantee you that every single person that takes one hit off of a marijuana pipe is automatically going to go to jail and develop a massive opiate addiction. I would say that there'd be a lot of people that wouldn't make those choices because that the reward wouldn't
0: be so great anymore. Right. Right. So imagine if, um, with one puff on a cigarette, somebody got cancer, right? right? I would promise you (laughs) that, almost nobody would ever take that risk to smoke. Whereas it's the slow burn that they yeah. am like, Oh, maybe I'll get cancer in 40 years. You know, because they want that immediate and it all starts when they're in teenagers, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And you stack these habits, right? You can stack good habits or you can stack bad habits. And I know in my experience and many others, you start to stack these bad habits. And then over time it creates this humongous snowball. That's incredibly challenging to unwind and unpack, if you will, and then it just becomes harder and harder the older you get. And I think the hardest thing is once you get off the drugs, it's like, okay, now you got to deal with why you chose to use them in the first place. Like you were saying, like, what's the root cause? Like yeah. it's easy. I mean, I don't want to say it's easy. It's incredibly hard to get sober and into recovery, but I think the more challenging part comes to when you have to look at yourself in the mirror and the masks are off and it's just you and you. And you got to say, okay, like here I am. I have nothing to self-medicate with. I got nothing to numb the pain. What am I going to do to help me deal with who I am? And the problem I think is people end up turning to food, sugar, cigarettes, other addictions. And like you say, the habit loop is still there. You're not getting out of that habit loop. It's still, you're having discomfort, instant gratification, feel good in the near term, feel like crap in the long term, And then that just completely, that
0: stacks itself too. Yeah. Well, case in point, I have a number of patients who go into rehab or they're referred to me after rehab. So they've been, you know, whether it's alcohol or drug or whatever, they've been out of their environment for weeks or even months at a time. And they come back into their environment and they've, you know, they've been like, oh, rehab was no problem. Well, they didn't have access, nor were they in the situations that triggered them to use or drink. So they come back into their normal situations. And if they haven't learned to work with their minds, they're just going to be bombarded.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, you talk about in the book that one of the, the myths, if you will, is changing the environment. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, I, in my experience, I think there's been a lot of there's a lot of importance in my life to changing who I surrounded myself with and my habits. But I don't think that's what you're talking about. I think it's more like you can't just eliminate everything around your life and live in a ba- live in your bathroom the rest of your life and then ex- expect to be able to kind of live sustainably you have to learn to deal with the emotions you have to learn to deal with life in a way that's conducive to the person that you want to be in the future
0: and yeah imagine you know, um, <laughs> you know trying to explain to your boss okay I'm going to work remotely for the rest of my life <laughs> from my bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're Like, can you at least use a virtual background? You yeah. So i yeah, like yeah. you know? yeah. <laughs> not going to work that way. Well, well and that, and then with COVID-19, I mean, the, the, one of the things
1: that I've been more vocal about is take what you believe about the pandemic out. Like I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, well, what can you control? How can you improve your mental health? How can you thrive during isolation? What can you do during this time to improve the way you feel about yourself? What are some things that you can look in, in, internal at and say, okay, I can use this as an opportunity to grow. I know you talk about that a lot because I think then people, again, they feel empowered. They're like, wow, there's actually something here I can work with, something I can do about it versus just focusing on the external and uncertainty. And we know that fear plus uncertainty exacerbates anxiety. That's the recipe for anxiety is fear plus uncertainty. And the higher the uncertainty, the higher the fear, the greater the anxiety. But I think the cure, if you will, is the curiosity because now you're able to look at what is certain. What can you find out about yourself in order Mm -hmm. to alleviate some of that? So my very last question, then I'll I'll let you go is, you got the book, Unwinding Anxiety. Why do you think it's so important for people to unwind anxiety instead of just trying to instantly like untangle a knot
0: within a few seconds? (laughs) That's a great (laughs) question. So if we instantly try to untangle a knot, we are invariably going to pull it tighter. (laughs) And what we have to do really is be able to look at that knot and see where the ends are and see where the tightness is, so to speak. And that can take more than a second. So we've got to look beyond the instant gratification of, Oh, I'm going to pull on this knot and help us see, oops, I pulled on it. It's now tighter, right? These are all of our unhelpful compensatory habit loops on top of the anxiety. And then we have to be able to see, Oh, if I step back and I look at this, knot carefully, if I understand it, right? The analogy is understanding how our minds work. Hmm. That's when we can untangle the knot. That's when we can work with our minds.
1: Awesome. Well, Dr. Judd, that was a phenomenal answer. And I think, It's so true because, I mean, I just take a cell phone cord, for instance. I mean, I'm sure many people listening to this have experienced it. If it's all knotted up in your mind, you're like, just, Doug, just take your time, slowly unwind it. And then I'm like, no, I can do this. And I manhandle it. And I'm like, dang it. This is even tighter than it was. And then I'm like, now I I need a new cord. Yeah. Why did I just (laughs) listen to myself in the first place? So I I greatly appreciate you coming on and talking all things, anxiety, addiction, habits, kind of how to unpack everything kind of, you know, also sharing some truths about like what's actually factual when it comes to dealing with anxiety and, and moving forward. And I, I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this conversation because people are struggling right now. I mean, people mm-hmm. are, are having a hard time. And I think there's a lot of misnomers out there, if you will, about how to deal with things. And I think having somebody on here who this is your bread and butter, this is your neuroscientist, your researcher, your psychiatrist in this field. And so there's a lot of Credibility for what you do. And I'm incredibly inspired and honored to have, have had this conversation. So, if people can want to find out more about what you have going on, I know the book is obviously available wherever books are sold, but where else can people, if they want to look up what you got going on, where can they find more about you?
0: Yeah. So, the apps, for example, that I mentioned, they're all publicly available. Anybody can download them. Uh, they can find all of the information about all this stuff. And we also have free resources on my website, which is drjud.com, drjud.com. So that's probably a good place for folks to look. Awesome. Well, I will make sure to plug all
1: that stuff in the show notes and let people know where to find you. Y'all definitely need to go buy his book. I listened to it. I was fascinated and blown away. And it really gets in like into the weeds on how you can deal with anxiety from the root cause up and then also identifies kind of a, a slow but sustainable approach to be able to unwind and and deal with your anxiety in a way that you'll be able to use for the rest of your life. So just like many of these episodes, I encourage you all to have a pen and paper and press pause, if you will, if you need to, or listen to it for a second time and jot down some notes, maybe some takeaways, because I think, it's going to be a lot in this that is going to help you be able to better deal with stress, better deal with anxiety or any other bad habits that you end up getting yourself into. And the only other thing that, that I always ask is that if you got something out of this episode, please share it, tag Dr. Judd, tag myself with a takeaway. Maybe it was something he said about habits, anxiety, addiction, like what we can do to kind of get that uh, bigger, better offer because we would love to hear feedback and what you learn from it. And once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. We'll see you next time.